0: It's Home Court Press, Utah Jazz Talk with Brian Priest and McCade Pearson. We've got a longer show planned for you today as McCade and I discuss the NBA trade deadline that's fast approaching, who will get moved, what contenders will improve, and who's going to be left out in the cold after the dust settles. We're also going to be looking at the Jazz defensive struggles in transition and whether or not they're a team built to claw back from late game deficits. Are these problems the Jazz can shore up before the playoffs begin in May? But first, we look at last night's huge win in Beantown over the streaking Boston Celtics. Stay tuned as all that and more is coming up next on Home Court Press Utah Jazz Talk. Welcome into Home Court Press Utah Jazz Talk. St. Patrick's Day edition, green beer for everyone. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined by McCade Pearson. McCade, how are you celebrating St. Patty's Day?
1: Uh, I'm just sitting around recording podcasts, doing homework, and then I work tonight, but I work from home, so I'll be sitting on this couch that I'm sitting on for the next 12 hours living life. But I'll have to turn off the St. Patrick's Day movies or some other things, and it'll be great. And, you know, I, winning's a green thing, right? The Jazz won last night against those little leprechauns from Boston, so <laughs> life's good. You could throw on your
0: uh, bright green jazz earned jersey and celebrate the holiday in style. And like I said, green beer for everyone. I might keep some of it for myself, if truth be told. But, you know, today we've got a big show planned today, McKead. We You mentioned that win over the Celtics last night in Boston. And we've also, it's a Wednesday, so we're going to do our weekly recap. We'll take a look around the league. There's going to be a lot of trade discussion conversation. And then the final segment, we're going to get into just a couple areas that we've seen the Jazz struggle in and not even anything that I'm like beating the drum and, and we need sirens and stuff for. Just a couple of things we, we think that they could relatively easily shore up to give themselves an even better opportunity at winning, at, you know, first getting the one seed in the West and then getting through the playoffs and winning the title. So should we start with last night's game? to it so huge win in boston i i don't think we can stress enough how big that win was over the celtics last night and there was a lot of encouraging things that i saw one the jazz ability to come back this was what their third or fourth time this season that they have won a game after trailing going into the fourth quarter they were able to hit shots when it really mattered the, the closing lineup with Rudy Gobert we saw was a monster last night. I know you've got a lot of numbers to go with that. But I actually want to start. One thing I noticed early in the game, and maybe I'm wrong about this, was there a slight rotation adjustment? Did Quinn go to Joe Ingles and Jordan Clarkson a little bit earlier? He brought him in at like seven and a half minutes left in the first. And if I remember right, it's usually three to four minutes left in the first quarter.
1: No, it's usually about six or so, but you have seen some slight adjustments there. Ingles has come in earlier Was it against Golden State no sorry, against Houston. They didn't bring in Jordan Clarkson until about three minutes, so they didn't bring him in together. So Quinn is definitely tinkering with which players come in and that timing. Um he is still looking in that six to seven minute range, which I'm not sure I love. The Jazz starters are the is the best five man lineup in the NBA. They're like a, I think they're one of only two teams that are plus hundred or better this year which you need both quantity and quality to get to plus 100 as a five-man lineup. So I would not mind seeing the starters play a little bit longer. They didn't play fantastic last night, but it is something that has been on Quinn's mind, you could tell, of the timing and impact of Joe Engle and Jordan Clarkson off the bench.
0: Yeah, I think that... You know, maybe we've gotten to Quinn, and he's he's looking at some of those things. Okay, I I have had no I've influence. I
1: to Donovan Ted. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I, you know, you're taking a lot of credit for that
0: one. I <laughs> I doubt that you're the only one saying hero ball, though. He's probably getting that from a couple people in his circle.
1: We'll talk about that a little bit later today for numbers <laughs> and we can discuss
0: it. But yeah, I, we'll move on. <laughs> Go no, those it. those were some great comments from Donovan, and I couldn't help but think of you there. Um. I don't know what what really stood out to you from last night's game. Like I said, I, there were a lot of encouraging things for me. Rudy's ability to defend on the perimeter again. We saw a highlight play against Jalen Brown where defends him going to the basket, ends up with a block shot, and then an alley oop dunk on the other end. And just you know, Jordan Clarkson looked at, looked more comfortable. He started to find the range once again. He struggled for a few weeks now. He ended up five of ten from the three point line, twenty points and. The plus-minus is always iffy for one game, but I love being able to look at the plus-minus yesterday, and there's only three guys in the negative. Two of them were starters, Royce and Boyan. but it's a negative one, so basically a wash. And then Favors was at minus six, and it makes sense that Favors is usually a negative when he's on the floor because of the way Quinn staggers his rotations, and Favors is playing against primarily starting units. So I love seeing so many positives on that plus minus. I love seeing six different guys scoring in double figures. Nobody really had a great game. Everybody just played solid offensively, and it, it, it was a lot of fun for me to watch that one.
1: Yeah, uh, if you don't mind, I kind of want to dive into that fourth quarter because the Jazz come into the fourth quarter down by two points, as you mentioned. pick up their third win in such scenarios where they're down after three quarters. And then they go and outscore the Celtics 40-30 to 30 in that final period. Some of that is the Celtics were fouling down to the buzzer like it was the end of a March Madness game. I'm not sure they realized that the season wasn't over if they lost this game because I think the Jazz shot eight free throws in the last 40 seconds. Um, a game that was never really within three or four points, so we'll take the extra offensive efficiency boost. You know, Donovan got to line. Boyan got to line a couple times off that. But I do think it's very rare that you see a quarter broken into three specific stages as hard as the break was for the Jazz in the fourth quarter. Um, I just want to throw out that bench lineup is just destroying teams. They, have, they struggled at the end of the third quarter, but they came out at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Um, they scored 18 points and eight possessions. Who, who are you six. talking
0: specifically in that bench lineup? Because usually uh, the Jazz have one or two starters on the floor.
1: So, yeah, it's Clarkson, Ingles, and Niang, along with Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert as okay. the starters. So, you're two, two of your all-stars with... Your two six-minute-year candidates in George Nying. So, really, just a fantastic lineup that's just destroying opposing bench units. Um, we saw them struggle. Like I said they let up a little run at the end of the third quarter where they were just kind of out of rhythm. They come out, and in eight possessions, they score seven times for 18 points. They hit three threes and Rudy Gobert. So, they hit three threes and Rudy Gobert hit three layups plus an and one. So, just, I mean, it was just fantastic stuff all around. Um, just dominating performance to go from down two to, I believe, up eight or nine. And things were fantastic. And then the, as the rotation goes, as Quinn will firmly tell you every game, that with about seven and a half minutes to go, you take all those guys out, all of them except for Clarkson, and Clarkson plays with the other four uh, rotation players. And that did not go as well. They ended up playing five possessions, and they lost the lead. It was back down to, I think, three when they checked back in. It was not pretty. Donovan had a really ugly turnover. Donovan got a shot block. Donovan missed a layup. Just really fell out of rhythm. And then you kind of had the starters finish it off, and the Jazz were able to hit down a couple threes. Donovan hit down hit two great threes that I'm not complaining about. He had that great assist to Mike Conley uh, in a big three in the corner on a little transition, relatively transition play. And the Jazz were able to run away and pick up a very, very important one. I don't think we can emphasize enough that this is a really good win. Winning in Boston is not easy. They're a very good team. They're relatively healthy for the most part. Finally, this is a really good win for the Jazz.
0: You know, on the other side of the coin, and not talking about the Jazz here, I think this is uh, the type of game that really shows the Celtics' weaknesses and their lack of depth. I mean, they've got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, obviously, two all-stars and two guys who— traditionally the Jazz defensively really struggle with over the last couple of years, defending on the perimeter, guys who are able to handle the ball and get to the basket, create their, their own shots. And Tatum and Brown both had great nights. I mean, Tatum was 12 of 24 from the field, scored 29. Brown finishes with 28 on 21 shot attempts. And they were really good, but there wasn't really anybody else that could create for themselves or do anything offensively for themselves in that Celtics offense. And so... You know, I think the, the Jazz strategy uh, a lot of times in some of these games is certain guys are going to be able to get their points, and they understand that. It's can we limit the role players? Can we limit the secondary and ancillary type of guys? And the Jazz were able to to do a really good job of preventing you know, Daniel Tice from getting it off or Kemba Walker really he struggled all season. He'll have you know one good game in five. That knee is definitely an issue— but he wasn't great last night. Uh, you know, finishes with 16 points, but wasn't awesome. And I do kind of like the way the Jazz and Quinn Snyder develop their defensive scheme, too. Look, we recognize there's a couple guys that are going to get off tonight, but we are going to decide who that is.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jason Tim, Jalen Brown both played awesome. They finished with a combined 57 points, 35 shots. Like, they were great, but they didn't kill you, um, especially yeah. if Hayden's kind of had a weird year. Where, you know, he finishes with six boards, three assists. Jim Brown, as I said, have, they both had really, really good games overall, but Kemba Walker's not what we're used to. Um, Gordon Hayward's not a thing, and there's just not much bench there. Marcus Smart's coming back from injury, and, you know, there are some struggles with the Celtics team that the Jazz were able to exploit, and Gobert is just amazing. Like, I, I mean, we've talked about the 24-point, 28-rebound game from Sunday, but he was great last night, specifically in the fourth quarter. He goes 11-5-2. and two on three of three shooting where he didn't miss a shot, didn't miss a free throw, just dominated the entire fourth quarter. Um was a plus 16 in the fourth quarter alone. was just fantastic. And the Celtics just did not have an answer to that. As great as Daniel Theis is, just, you know, Rudy Gobert is a all-NBA legit top 15 player in this league, and he is showing that night after night after night right now.
0: The last thing I wanted to mention about last night's game, this was a tweet from Andy Larson, and I thought he made a great point. It's something that you and I have discussed a little bit, and we'll talk about it more later, but the uh, hero ball that we see sometimes from the Jazz at the end of games. And Andy made a great point, so simple and succinct. He said, how about we just put the ball in the hands of the all-star guard that's not being defended by Marcus Smart? And we saw a couple times there were a few possessions where Donovan gets himself into trouble being defended by Marcus Smart and ends up out by half court and struggles to get by or create for anybody else in the offense. And, yeah, Marcus Smart is probably a a first-team, all-defense caliber type of player. And we have two all-star guards. So if Smart is on Donovan, let Conley create and run the offense. That's something that I think... The Jazz could really benefit from just simplifying things. Okay, who's the best defender? Let's let's get the ball away from him.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean Donovan finishes two for five in the fourth quarter with that turnover, um, so it doesn't look bad per se. But they did lose the lead in that middle stretch of the quarter, and then you watch the last two minutes. Andy Larson over this really well in his triple team because Andy's the best out there. Um, but you have the one possession where Colnie kinda of shrugs off Donovan, they run a to year old Rudy and Boyan gets a wide open three that he misses um from the right corner. And then the next possession, Donovan takes a crazy pull up three and it goes in. So it is a make or miss league. But and that's you know, that's what matters at the end of the day for a game scenario. But yeah, long term the the Jazz have a great team and the more they play as a great team, the better they'll be. And so you escaped with the win yesterday, and part of that's because they were playing ahead. The Jazz do really well when they're up, as a lot of teams do, obviously. But especially mm-hmm. the Jazz do really well when they're up, and they struggle to figure out ways to crawl back into games. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But as like I said, last night was a very interesting study of kind of what happened down the stretch.
0: All right, McKay. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna look around the league. We'll talk about Portland. We'll talk about the trade market as the deadline approaches. Just. One week from tomorrow, and we'll mention the buyout market, a couple guys involved there, and then we'll finish up talking about the Jazz as a whole. So, thanks for listening to Home Court Press. We'll be right back. If you haven't had a chance, check out the Jazz Pod Co op on Twitter. It's a group of podcasts with like minded people that just want to share their opinions on the Jazz. Here's a preview. Mark and Doug hintsey on the twos and threes. The weird things about dude shots is like my favorite like NBA subcategory of, <laughs> of the that definitely, that definitely <laughs> of their hands. Sure. And like or of like the length of their arms affecting something. I, I'm, I'm like whether they jump off of one foot because, or two foot. Right. Like, Emily and McCoy on the Jazza Gals. If anything, that video
1: also reminded me like how just a few inches difference it was be- between us being on one side versus the other you know like well we all know a few inches can make a difference
0: who logan and jared on hitting the high notes
1: i, I don't even care if they're hurt i mean we're not gonna wobbles. dance on any injuries but yes no, i i i, same, same. I, same. I, I can't, I can't <laughs> make any promises i don't even care if it's a fluke or we cheat i don't even care I'll up, yeah. if so, you're not cheating you're not trying right uh, That's what
0: they say. And Brian and McCade on Home Court
1: Press. With Boyan, Memphis is really struggling to shoot. So giving Boyan to the Grizzlies and then having the Grizzlies forward our first-round pick onto another team, if you get Boyan a first-round pick and then get Memphis to throw in a first-round pick in the A and take Boyan, a lot of possibilities open for a guy like John Collins.
0: Welcome back to Home Court Press. We just got done talking about the Jazz win over the Celtics last night on Tuesday. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined by McCade Pearson, as always. And, McCade, what do you say we take a look around the league?
1: Yeah, the league's, we're, are we allowed to say we're entering the final stretch of the season or is that a little too early?
0: Uh, I think we're still in the doldrums. I, I think this year we probably have to get into April before we can say final stretch.
1: All right, well, we're at the end of the middle stretch of the season then. Um, but interesting things are starting to happen. The playoff picture is getting a little bit more and more clear every day. There's some, the NBA is in a fun point right now.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the NBA season is always fun as the trade deadline approaches. It's, it's one of the leagues. It's similar to baseball where there's there's always or typically so many different trades, so many teams making moves, wheeling and dealing, whether they're looking to build for the future and add assets or you've got contenders that are – Trying to make that final push for the postseason and put themselves in the best position to win a title. I actually want to start before we get into the trade deadline, though. I'm terrified of this team. The Portland Lill- The I knew I was going to screw this up. The Portland Lillards, they're getting healthy. The- that Trailblazer team is sitting at 23 and 16. They're six back at the Jazz, six in the West right now. And they've been without CJ McCollum for two months, they've been without Yusuf Nurkic for about two and a half months right now. And somehow Damian has kept that team afloat, and right in the thick of things in the Western Conference, McCollum returned on Tuesday night, and Nurkic is expected back in the next couple of weeks. I think the Trailblazers could make a big run to finish the season.
1: Yeah, and they're I think they're six and one in games decided by one or two points. They just edge out close games like no other because you know Dame time, um, and so as they get healthy, I think they'll make a little run. I'm still not sure they can move up in the West. I think Denver. The LA team, Phoenix, and Mouse are kind of in our top tier, but I would be scared to death of Portland in the playoffs. Um, but it's looking more and more likely they don't slide to eight, and that's all that really matters for the Jazz. And so if they can stay in that 6-7 range and we don't have to see them in their Western Conference finals, and if we do see them in the Western Conference finals, it means they avoided the LA teams or whatnot. I'll take that every day. So, so they are playing amazing, but it's looking like, and I'm hoping that means they're out of the Jazz path because of the way they're playing. so I do have Nurkic on my main fantasy team, though, so I'm thrilled he's coming back. (laughs) I've had a center all year.
0: You always got to drop that fantasy nugget in there. I I got a question for you, McKay. I just came up with this one off the top of my head. If we lump the five teams, the Jazz, the Suns, Lakers, Clippers, and Nuggets, and say they're firmly in contention mode right now, who's the biggest dark horse after that in the West? I'll give you the Trailblazers, the Mavericks, or the Pelicans, who would you be the most worried about?
1: I think it's the Trailblazers um, because they have that full team. Actually, I don't know what I'm talking about because I just pulled the standings to talk about a bit more. And Portland's now tied with Denver, so maybe they can jump above Denver and get that five seed even if I think Denver's a better team. so Portland does scare me because of Dame. Um, Golden State kind of for the same reason, but I do think CJ and Nurkic are better than Draymond and whoever else is on that Warriors team. And so that's the thing with all these teams, though, and Dallas is included in that. I wouldn't really consider New Orleans as part of that, but they just have a super-duper star in Steph, Luca, or Dame. That just scares me. Um, But Portland is the scariest because of Nurkic is fantastic. CJ is really, really good. And then, you know, they've already made their win-down move, though, with Robert Covington, so I don't think Portland can be much of a buyer at the trade deadline. Mm -hmm. We'll just have to play it out, but it's a cliche. It's a cliche I hate. But, you know, getting Nurkic and C.J. McCollum is like making a move at the trade deadline. Um, So, (laughs) like, Portland's fantastic. And the way Dame is able just to... I don't really believe in clutch shooting for the most part. I think it's a lot of luck. But Damian Lillard is very, very big-time evidence that that is not true. He's just ridiculous. We saw it again last night, where he finished with 50 points on 20 shots and a comeback win over New Orleans. So... Ridiculous what's going on out in Portland. I'm most
0: scared of them. Fifty points on twenty shots. What what an insane number. All right, let's let's move on. We don't need to get hung up on Damian Lillard too much. Let's take a look at this trade market. As I mentioned, the deadline is set for March 25th. That's one week from Thursday. Or if you're listening to this today, it's one week from tomorrow. So. I wanted to start with the Clippers. Uh, A lot of rumors that they're looking to add the point guard position. And so really it's going to come down to what are they willing to pay and how much in terms of assets do they even have to offer. They've been linked to guys like George Hill, Ricky Rubio, scary Terry Rozier, though I'm not totally understanding that one. I don't know why the Hornets would be willing to move on from him. And linked to a big name, not necessarily a good player anymore, Russell Westbrook. What do you think about those?
1: Um, their biggest problem, because that's a wide range of salaries you just mentioned, is just matching salaries and who that means they have to give up, um, you know, cause you're probably looking to give up Lou Williams makes 8 million. Patrick Beverly makes 13.3 million. So those are kind of your guards you're looking to swap out. So does a Rubio really help them that much more than a Patrick Beverly? I'm not sure. And I love Rubio, you know, you're not going to get to Westbrook money. I don't know what that's about. You can get to Rozier money, but Charlotte's in the middle of playoff contention. They look great. I mean, not championship great, obviously, but they're a legit playoff team who's really, really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and So I'm not sure what the Clippers do here. They don't have any real assets to trade because Oklahoma City owns all the assets in the entire NBA. So they're just going to have to make magic out of something, and I'm not sure if it's going to be a net positive move. It might just look and feel like a move to make a move. And sometimes those work. You know, different styles can be a good thing, and they feel like they need a true point guard next to – Kawhi and Paul George, but other times it doesn't work. And so I'm not too worried about the Clippers making a move, although I do think they make one because the way Jerry West works is he's pretty peddled the metal and, you know, he's been to what? I think it's finals in six straight decades or something crazy like that. So they'll make something happen and feel like they improved, although I'm not sure if I'm buying that they did improve.
0: As a Jazz fan, I love the idea of Russell Westbrook to the Clippers. I don't know if it's feasible, but especially if they have to give up Uh, Pat Beverly in the deal to acquire a Westbrook. Uh, Another guy who needs the ball in his hands to do anything positive on a basketball court. Somebody who's much more name than substance these days. I, I think Westbrook would just absolutely implode that Clippers team from the inside. Probably the best name in my mind that I mentioned there would be George Hill. And honestly... George Hill, if for anybody looking to acquire a point guard that is a relatively low cost, I think George Hill is the perfect target. He could even be a target for the Jazz. He's familiar with Quinn Snyder's system. He's played with Joe Ingles, and he, he played with Rudy and Derek Favors. So he's got a lot of familiarity with the team, as well as knowing the system. You know, I, I think George Hill should be a big-time target for any team willing to give up a uh, First-round pick in the middle to later end of the first round.
1: Yeah, George Hill's a very interesting one to keep an eye on. As I mentioned, the Thunder already have all the picks in the world, so they're looking to expand upon that a little bit more um, with guys like Trevor Reason and whatnot. Yeah, George Hill, I believe, gets moved, and he's at a very reasonable price. That shouldn't be hard for a lot of teams to match money. You know, could, Would you do Lou Williams for George Hill straight up? Probably. Yeah, yeah I would. So, you know, we'll keep an eye on what the Clippers do, but I do agree. They're going to make a move. Um, I'm just not sure if I'm going to love the move, which is a jazz band makes me love the move, so it's okay.
0: Right. So let's uh, let's just use that as a natural transition. We'll talk about the Thunder and just how many assets they have available. And Al Horford, it sounds like Horford is available, but the Thunder, are, are they want picks. They want assets in return. They're not interested in just unloading that salary. I'm not sure how likely it is any team gives up more than a late first-round pick at best for Al Horford and and you know just matching salaries there. There's been conversation about Trevor Ariza possibly going to Miami. He hasn't played for the Thunder at all this year. He'd come at a relatively low cost. Looks like maybe one second-round pick, possibly two, would be a good defensive player. Teams could add on the perimeter. And then George Hill, as we just talked about, I think he should be a target of— a lot of teams in the league. Just a, an under-the-radar type of guy. He's missed some time. I think he broke his hand earlier in the season, so he missed six weeks or so. But he's a good, he's a solid player. He is a big point guard at, what, six, probably 6'4", six, 200 pounds. So he, he gives you a good defensive presence. Doesn't turn the ball over a lot. Isn't a great shooter, but isn't uh, doesn't hurt you on the offensive end either. He's a guy, if the Jazz were just looking to do something to shore up the perimeter, but they didn't want to give up a whole lot. I think you could get George Hill for a first-round pick.
1: Yeah, um, I'm interested to hear George Hill. i want to talk about Ariza for a second, though, because he's making $12 million, and so he will be bought out or traded for. Um, I'd keep an eye on the Heat there. Uh, the Heat, this past summer, signed Myers Leonard to a one-year, $10 million deal. Everyone's like, well, why? Why are you giving Miles Leonard 10000000 million? You're not going to play him at all, and now he's having his whole fiasco with his personal life because he's not the smartest guy in the world. Um, but everyone's like, you know, why did you do that? And here's the reason why. So when this comes along, you can match salaries pretty easy. Miles Leonard's out with an injury for the rest of the season, but he matches salary with Trevor Reza just fine. You throw in a second-round pick, and boom, you get Trevor Reza for basically nothing. So good job by the Heat front office there to give out these medium contracts to help Match salary. So I would keep an eye on them for Trevor just like they did with Andre Gudala last year, who sat out to the trade deadline. So yep. yeah. that's where I'd assume Ariza ends up, but there are a couple other options. Um, really, any team in need of, I say three and D, but we've overused that term. Ariza is not a great three point shooter, but he's a veteran who's won a couple titles and is really solid to come in and play 15 minutes off the bench, a solid defense. And he can shoot one for two from three, and that's good enough off the bench. So
0: I've always liked a reason for a second-round pick. That, that seems like a, a pittance to pay for a guy that you can basically plug in to, as the seventh, eighth, ninth man in your rotation, uh, somebody who's not going to demand 20 minutes a game and it could just be a nice piece for any team. I think the Heat and teams like that would definitely look to make a move.
1: Yeah, the Jazz that we've talked about this plenty, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again before next week. The Jazz just have a hard time matching salaries right now. Um all their players are appropriately paid. And so unless you're moving boy sixteen mil, you know, you're not gonna be able to get up and get an eight, nine mil player without trading ways and it gets complicated. So we'll see. You know, I just don't think the Jazz are the Jazz are in a weird position. We'll just move on from that. Uh,
0: now one guy that's apparently not on the market, he there was conversation that he might request a trade earlier in the year, but the uh, Wizards have Started to play a little bit better basketball and hearing from multiple sources that Bradley Beal is just flat and not available. The Wizards right now are three games out of a play-in spot in the Eastern Conference. But the East is so bad that you go on a five-game win streak and you're you're right back in it. So I think it makes sense for the Wizards to hang on to Beal. Another guy in the East, though, that... You're getting rumors both ways. Uh, Hearing from the Pacers that they're not actively shopping Miles Turner, but then we're also seeing a lot of rumors about teams that are actively inquiring about what it would take to get Turner. I know that the Pacers were interested in moving on from him over the summer. They offered him to Boston in a sign-and-trade for Gordon Hayward, and I think Miles Turner has increased his value this season. He's a lot of the the same of of what we thought he would be, but for whatever reason— through his play this year, teams value him more now than they did six months ago. So, like, the Knicks, Hornets, Pelicans, both L.A. teams are rumored to have interest. So my question to you, McCade, is who do you think Miles Turner would help the most if he's moved? And at what cost could he be had?
1: Oh, get him to Charlotte. I would, He'd be so much fun in Charlotte with Gordon Hayward and LaMelo Ball and all those guys. Um, they're starting Cody Zeller right now who's on an expiring $15.5 million deal the salaries match pretty well I'm kind of all in on the Charlotte team because I really like that Charlotte team uh, they're super super fun to watch Turner would just be another weapon that would give them at least a puncher chance to win a first round series this year and would give them something to build off in the future because Charlotte's building something out there they're finally getting things up and running um, after the Kemba Walker thing didn't work the last few years and they let him walk in that weird scenario and yada 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 so I would love to see him in Charlotte. We'll see where he ends up. Boston didn't want him to past summer in a signing trade with Gordon Hayward. And I'm just not sure like, how the Clippers go get him. And the Clippers are fine. They have Zubac, who I love, and Sergio Baca is really good. So I don't know why they're going after Miles Turner. And so we'll see where all the cookies crumble. But I do expect Miles Turner to be moved because Pacers fans have talked about how much they hate the Sabonis-Turner lineup for quite some time, similar to our favorites, Colbert lineup. Um, and so, yeah, we'll kind of see where they land. The Knicks do have cap space still, which is super rare at this point in the season. They have like fifteen million cap space, so they can really make something work relatively easy without giving up much many players, um, in value. But of course, just because you can doesn't mean you don't have much value in the trade. Like the Pacers still want stuff back for him, so we'll see where it all falls, but I do expect him to be moved.
0: I think Charlotte is a great destination for him. I can see him plug him in place of Cody Zeller in that starting lineup, like you said, and play at the fastest pace in the league and just run, 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 run all night. They're already a fun team to watch. That could be really exciting. And the fact that it would be in the Eastern Conference pleases me even more. couple guys to mention really quick on the buyout market, and if you have any other names to add for this one, uh, possibly Andre Drummond. The, the Cavs are searching far and wide, trying to get some assets in return for Drummond. If they're not able to, he is expected to be bought out. Sounds like LaMarcus Aldridge could be bought out or you know, similar situation to Drummond. The Spurs are looking to try and trade him if they can find the right deal, and I don't think it's going to take much to acquire either of these guys. Who do you think could be more impactful for a playoff run, Drummond or Aldridge or somebody else?
1: Well, both are terrible basketball players at $30 million a year, but both would be really, really good basketball players on the minimum. Yep. So um, I expect them both to go to contenders and be positive contributors. The uh, Lakers and Nets are obviously the first two options, but if the Jasmine Allen got Marcus Aldridge to play some four for him, I would not be disappointed. Oh, even no. If no, Aldridge so is Aldridge. garbage. He wouldn't so, play
0: in a Quinn Snyder offense.
1: That's fair. He would have to, for sure, shoot threes and not long jumpers. Um, you know, the Bucks were in on some buyout market players last year. They got Marvin Williams. Marcus Aldridge is still that role pretty well. They'll end up places, and they'll be – Better than than fans expect, but worse than you would hope. I guess is a good way to put it. Um, I don't think they'll be like Nick Batum resurgence. Like holy crap, is or Marcus Aldridge really good again? But they'll be fine. Um, I do still like Andre Drummond a decent amount. I'd go out and get him no matter what team I was, except for the Jazz. I feel more confident favors in Drummond. Drummond has some struggles, but you know if he goes to Lakers or Nets, I think that's for sure a good move for those teams, and I would not be thrilled with that as a jazz fan but i do expect both of them to get bought out because no real contender is matching 30 million in salaries for those two guys and no real mediocre team cares to they're not needle movers by any means so i just don't see where they end up outside of a buyout market
0: are there any other potential buyout guys that you have your eyes on
1: there's been slight rumors of auto porter getting bought out with the bulls i don't know if i buy it Porter's still a really good player. Um, but, again, when you get these monster contracts and so there's no value in trading for them, and then they're on expirings, if nobody – I mean, the only real teams that would trade for these kind of guys are bad teams that are looking to just clear future salary cap space. Um, and there's not much of that this year. Most of the teams have already made those moves and prepared for this summer. So, other Porter Porter's one, I'll keep an eye on, although I don't think it happens. And he would be another one. The Jazz had huge interest back when Hayward left. Remember, they were flying out to offer him a max deal, but Brooklyn beat him to it. And then the Wizards matched anyway, eye on auto Porter. But I don't think he gets bought out.
0: All right, McCade, unless you have something else, we'll take another break. And then when we come back, we'll finish up just taking a deep dive into the Jazz, looking at their ability to defend in transition and whether or not they're a team that's built to come back from late-game deficits. So thanks for listening to Home Court Press. Thanks for tuning in today. It's season two of Home Court Press with McCade Pearson and Brian Priest. Home Court Press can be found on any of your major podcatchers, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And please, if you like what you're hearing, remember to share, rate, and review so that we can expand our audience. Home court press can also be found on kbar.com. Just go to kbar.com forward slash home court press. Lastly, give McCade Pearson a follow on Twitter at P 8 That's M C C A D E P8. You can find me Brian Priest on Twitter as well at B Priest24. That's at B P R E E C E24. As always, thanks for listening to Home Court Press. And take note. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Home Court Press. Brian Priest joined by McCade Pearson. And now we're looking at the Jazz and some specific deep dives on them. First, we wanted to talk about their ability to defend in transition. We've seen the Jazz are um, a much better offensive team when they're able to get stops and get in transition themselves. And, And when they're least effective defensively, especially lately in the last two or three weeks, We've seen them struggle to get back on the defensive end. Teams that like to run, the Pelicans, the Sixers, the Rockets gave them some trouble the other night. The Warriors were a big issue on Sunday. Take this and run with it, McCade. Hey, pun intended. And uh, <laughs> let let's see where we go.
1: Now see all these numbers are from cleaning the glass, but they are just some interesting things to throw out there is because I was really surprised that the Jazz are average in efficiency doing this. They're letting up around an extra two point six possessions a game because of transition. That's good for 15th in the league. Um, But they're 25th in frequency, so they're allowing these things to happen a ton. And it's just not killing them as much as I had thought. I said, it interesting that the frequency is that high, specifically 29th in frequency for rebounds. So teams are just trying as hard as they can, and this is where the Warriors killed us and were successful with. But overall, teams are just trying to kill us. When we miss a shot and we don't get the offensive rebound, teams are just, book in the back of the other way yep. off those rebounds. And the Jazz are still doing a decent job of defending it. And I'm not sure why, because Rudy's been crashing the offensive glass like crazy this year, and they're sending guys like Royce and Conley in to help with the offensive rebounding. So I get the advantage viewpoint of, oh, look, we have a four-on-three or three-on-two, let's get out and run. But are Mitchell Clarkson, Boyan, Engel, those kind of guys just doing that good of a job getting back? Is Rudy doing that good of a job running rim-to-rim? Or, you know, what's going on there? I need to go back and watch some film to figure out why these numbers are coming out the way they are. Because the efficiency isn't as concerning as the frequency, which I thought was interesting.
0: You know what I think plays a big role in that, and maybe you can tell me if I'm off base here. I think the Euro foul that the Jazz employs so frequently, and, and obviously the mechanics behind it have changed with the uh, you know, breakaway foul rules and things like that. But the Jazz do a great job of having one guy back at least most of the time, and being able to get a foul before a shot attempt can go up. So it resets the possession, and they're able to get into a half-court defense. Do you think that plays a role?
1: Yeah, I'm sure that does. Um, I would love to see what percent of Joe Ingles' fouls are Euro fouls, because I feel like it's like 80 or 90. Oh, it's yeah, it's got to be huge like But I feel like Joe Ingles is the king of that. Um so I think that's part of it. I do just think the Jazz are a really good defensive team and even when you're when you're a good defensive team, even the things you do bad still come out pretty good. I mean it's not like the Jazz are great. They're like tenth in efficiency um, off of rebounds specifically. And so I mean that's fine. That's a good overall thing. Um, if you can limit the frequency which they haven't been able to. The other thing is the other side of it is steals and the Jazz just have a lot of on ball sorry, not on ball a lot of live ball turnovers. That we saw mm-hmm. last night. Donovan had that terrible turnover in the fourth quarter. There was a couple times in the Warriors' games where the Warriors just picked up steals and got one-on-o fast breaks, which are going to be two points every time. Because the Jazz are 27th in efficiency there and 27th in points game there, so they're letting up a ton of them. That just that that's what's really killing the Jazz on paper. Anyway, is the steals one? Although the frequency isn't as high there, so that's. Concerning, but that's also just part of the Quinn Snyder system. It's something they've struggled yeah. with for six or seven years, and so it's easy to look at this one thing and go, okay, this is a negative, it has to be fixed. But I'm not sure how you fix it without taking away the positives of Quinn's system. Um, and then at that point, you're reworking the entire system, and that's for sure an offseason conversation. But it is... Something that is a big negative of Quinn's system is the Jazz let up a lot of live ball turnover steals that go the other way for easy points.
0: I think you hit the nail right on the head there. Just by the nature of their system and that they throw so many passes, they are going to turn the ball over more often than a lot of teams who don't move the ball as much as the Jazz. Some of those are going to end up in live ball steals, but that's going to be a number of the ebbs and flows as long as they they're playing within the offense and what i see a lot of times from those live ball steals it's more often when you you break away from the offense and uh you know donovan trying to penetrate in an ill-advised way or um you know a bad pass The, the jazz for whatever reason like to drive the baseline and throw jump passes and Sometimes it works out great, but we see a lot of times where defenses just step right in front and they already have momentum headed toward the other end.
1: Yeah, and like a lot of the Jazz live ball turnovers are from guards who are just breaking the paint at the free throw line, kicking it out to the corners. Um, And those are tough because then you have Rudy at the rim. You have the passer at the rim, and you have the supposedly receiver in the corner, and then all of a sudden, you're left to two guys. One guy in the other corner has to get back, and then the other guard up top has to get back, and that just leads to some issues, especially with the Jazz. You know, in transition, athleticism is really important, and with all due respect to guys like Mike Conley and Royce O'Neal, they're not necessarily the most athletic guys in the NBA, um, so that's where some of those struggles come from. is Because the Jazz, obviously, I know this is going to be a hot take, but... If Rudy Gobert can't get back on defense, the Jazz probably are not the best defensive team in the league because Rudy Gobert is a good defender. Shocking, I know. (laughs) And so, you know, that's kind of where the concern comes to there. And it's not perimeter defense, but it's perimeter players playing the defense. And it's just not a strength of the Jazz, which is fine. We can get into a whole other conversation about that another time. But I'm not overly concerned. I'll say this. I'm a lot less concerned than I was before I looked up the numbers. Because the eye test does say, "Holy crap, this is an issue." Part of that's just the Warriors' game was so 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 bad. Yeah, um, but the frequency, twenty fifth overall on frequency, is a little concerning. But league average efficiency, you can deal with, um, especially if you can slow games down a little bit in the playoffs and that kind of stuff. You're hopefully not giving up as many live ball turnovers, then the Jazz will be fine. So, is this an issue? I'll say yes. Is this a major concern? I'll say no. Um, Is it something I'm overall worried about? Is this going to be the reason the Jazz lose in the playoffs? I'm going to say no. But it is something that is not the Jazz's biggest string.
0: Yeah, some positives there. Like you said, the eye test definitely seems more glaring than looking at these numbers. So last question on this transition conversation. Is there one change that you think the Jazz could make that wouldn't impact their offense in a huge way that would help them with this transition's defense and move from middle of the pack to maybe top ten?
1: Um, I'll think about that and post something on Twitter if I get an idea. But my gut instinct off the bat is no. I mean, I think the offensive rebound has brought tremendous value to the Jazz this season. That you know, I think the NBA has gone a little too far not rebounding offensively, and the Jazz all of a sudden ricochets from one of the worst teams to one of the best teams. Specifically, just because I think Quin Snyder said, "Hey, let's go do this this season." I think that's been a great positive benefit. And the whole blender system is around getting guys in the paint and into the corners and open threes in the corners and rotating it around. When you do that stuff fast and you have to make decisions before the ball gets to you, you're going to have turnovers because you make the wrong decision a decent amount. And I think that's okay too. So I think it is not impossible. There's always a way, but I think for the most part, at least right off the top of my head, there's this is just a side effect of all the good things that jazz do.
0: Let's transition here. And I want to talk about the, whether or not the jazz are a team that's built to come back from Deficits, and, and I'm not talking a 20-point deficit in the third quarter. I'm talking being behind by seven with eight minutes left in the game, You know what we were seeing from the uh, Golden State game, where the Jazz were able to cut into the Warriors lead but could never really get over the hump. And they've had so much opportunity to play from the, the advantage this year that we just haven't seen it very much. And honestly, this is something that's difficult to measure, but... It's exactly why we have you on the podcast here, because you you are the numbers guy, and if anybody can measure the Jazz ability to come back, it's you that can find those numbers. So tell us about that.
1: Well, I mean, first you just got to dive into the law of large numbers, and when you play these short little stints, the large numbers does not. I mean, the numbers do not get large. So there's a lot of luck and in fluke into this. You know, one three point. We look at last night. Donovan hits the off the dribble three last night the minute to go to put up six, and it makes it look a lot prettier than if he missed that shot. So you do get into some sketchy small sample sizes here um but there's no way around that you're literally looking at small sample sizes down the stretch so you're, you know you're intentionally going out of your way to look at small sample sizes so you just got to kind of take it for what it's worth so i do want to point out there's a lot of luck in this before we get started on this conversation but two years ago i personally like to use within three points the last two minutes and the jazz did not have a win when they were trailing or tied in the last two minutes of a game by three points or less. Uh, the team above them ranked twenty nine, had four wins. Most teams had seven, eight, nine wins in a season. And it was a big concern for me heading into last season. And then last season, the Jazz did really well. Uh, the boy on threes against Milwaukee and Houston helped. Um, but the Jazz did pretty well in the clutch last year. So, But this year, they're kind of falling back to old habits, which, again, I think it's a little outside of it's just luck, but there's obviously some luck involved. So this year, now we're looking at what most people classify as the clutch, five points, five minutes. Um, And the Jazz are 1-7 when trailing in that scenario. They didn't trail last night. They had the lead of five minutes to go, and they didn't give it up because the Jazz are really, really good at playing from ahead. So for the season, just some quick context numbers. They are 27-0-1. Sorry, 26-0-1 when going into the fourth quarter with a lead. That one, quote-unquote, tie was the loss to Philly in overtime. So, you know, the Jazz going into the fourth quarter with a lead, it's a win. Like, straight up, they're not losing that game. The certainly, game they lost this year, still in overtime. Mm-hmm. They're doing great at that. But they, the nine times they've trailed after three quarters, they are three and six in those games. Um, you have Boston last night where you took the lead off a huge run to start the fourth quarter. You have the next game at home, which you were down I think one or two points. You scored with eleven thirty to go in the fourth quarter and never gave it up. So that one counts for this, but. You know, you can look at the box score, the play-by-play, and go, you know what, that one really shouldn't count this because we led with at 11.30 to go and never gave it up. And then really the only game that keeps popping up in all these snares is that Oklahoma City game to start the year on the road after the Blazers game. Um, I think it was the third game of the year. We went to Oklahoma City and hit a game winning shot like seven seconds to go. And that's the only time the Jazz have really come back in the fourth quarter this year.
0: Question for you yeah. real quick, McKay. That OKC game early in the year, if I remember right, wasn't that just a super ugly game, and Donovan hit some really, really tough shots that it's a make-or-miss league. Sometimes those shots fall, but it, the Jazz didn't look particularly good in getting that win, right?
1: No, people were pretty upset with that win. They were like, what are we doing? How are we struggling with the Thunder? The Thunder has actually been better than people think, but yeah, it was not the prettiest game in the world. Um, but we were able to pull that one out. So overall, last five minutes, five points, and the Jazz are trailing. By that five point two loss, the Jazz are one and seven this year. Um, I just mentioned that one win being the Oklahoma City game, and so getting that number just a little bit higher could be pretty beneficial.
0: Okay, so are there teams in the league that do a better job at this than the Jazz? You know, you said they're three and six when trailing after three quarters, and what, basically, where do the Jazz stand in terms of the rest of the league? And are there any opponents in uh, specifically the Western Conference that? do a better job of finishing these late games?
1: Um, yeah, so the Clippers are 0-9 after losing after three quarters. I thought it was really interesting. That kind of seems a little fluky and just weird and random to go 0-0 for something.
0: Does it, um, though? The Clippers don't have they, – they really don't have that one guy you can go to possession after possession after possession that's going to steady the offense. And, like, Kawhi Leonard is great. But he's not that guy you go to constantly. Paul George is a a hit-or-miss type of player. And I, I feel like in these situations, the point guard position is probably the most important player you can have on the floor.
1: Yeah, and I agree with that because we'll look at the next four teams that I was going to mention, and I agree with that. But zero for nine still kind of startling. Like even the Jazz at three for nine. Like you should be able to bounce your way into a Knicks game where you're down by one, and then are up by one thirty seconds in, and all of a sudden you haven't. So that is just a weird one. But yeah, so Phoenix with Chris Paul seven and eight, mm-hmm. the Lakers with LeBron eight and nine. So those teams are pushing five hundred in these situations, and then Denver and Portland are seven and twelve and eight for twelve. Sorry, seven and twelve and eight and twelve. So. You expect these, teams, these games to be below 500. That makes sense. You're losing with 12 minutes to go. But yeah. if you can push that up to an 8 12 like Portland, that brings a lot of value to the team. But I do want to stop and point out that's 15 games, 17 games, 19 games, the 20 game sample size, and the Jazz are at 12 games. Um, so the Jazz are at 9 games. So the Jazz have just done such a good job about leading after three quarters that our sample size isn't quite where those teams are. But those are wins that those teams are being able to pick up that has helped them out a lot this year. What do the Jazz need to do? That's the conversation we can have because Jokic has been fantastic. He's kind of that point guard you mentioned. And then you have Damian Lillard, Chris Paul, LeBron James, guys who've just been there a billion times and are just so under control and keeping their team's offense moving in these situations.
0: Yeah, and that's a conversation we've had about Donovan Mitchell. And I am in the camp that it's still just his fourth year in the league. He's being asked to do so much and shoulder so much of the load for this Jazz team that – it makes sense that he's he goes through some growing pains in these games. And the Jazz have had so few opportunities to play in close games or trail in the fourth quarter that they just they haven't been able to build up that experience so far this season. And every year is different. So it's not like, can 100% go back and rely on last year or the year before? Like This, this Jazz team is different. Their closing lineups are different. The way they use guys is a little bit different. So... I think Donovan being able to gain this experience, I know a month ago there was conversation about the Jazz are blowing so many teams out, first world problems, how do we know if they can compete in close games? Well, we've had a lot more opportunity in March to see the Jazz in these close games, and That's another reason why last night's win over the Celtics is so encouraging to me, is the way they played in the second half of that game, really the entire second half, they never let the Celtics pull away. Every time the Celtics did get a lead, the Jazz answered consistently. And even when the Celtics would cut into the Jazz lead, they were able to answer on those situations. And so, yeah, maybe it's just a one-game fluke, but... I would like to, being the optimist, I I like to lean toward they're figuring some things out, they're seeing what's going to work, and they know they have options as ball handlers. We look at some of these other teams, they don't have as many options as the Jazz do. They're always going to have at least two great ball handlers on the floor and guys that can run an offense and slow the team down and get them into the right stuff. But Donovan is that main guy, and he's still learning to do that. So some struggles don't surprise me, but I see a lot of positives that they're building right now as well.
1: So, yeah, let's kind of dive into some Jazz-specific numbers here then, specifically some players, because Donovan obviously gets a lot of the talk about hero ball, and he is basically, most of the shot attempts for the Jazz in general, but specifically in the fourth quarters, um, these numbers are fourth quarters or overtime, and you're down by 10 points or less. So, as you mentioned you're it's six, seven minutes to go, and you're down seven what's up So Donovan is shooting thirty seven percent from the field and twenty nine percent from three and Clarkson's the other guy who takes a lot of shots and he's at forty five percent thirty six percent so pretty close to a season season averages, but not a ton and those numbers just need to be better. Um, Specifically, the Donovan thing where he's 37%, 29% is just not going to cut it. We need him to make more shots in those scenarios. And specifically, we just need him to shoot a little less in those scenarios. We've seen the big plays where the Jabs have made these game-winning plays, these game-saving plays happen, when Donovan's a distributor, as well as yep. before we saw last night, how big was the transition pass to Mike Conley for the left corner three to put the Jabs up five or six points with three minutes to go. It's those types of things that really help the team win. And then we mentioned... You know, Andy Larson's tweet of, Hey, Marcus Smart's doing a really good job on your all star guard. What can you do to solve it? Oh, give it to the other all star guard because we have two of them. And so we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but the ability to have two all star guards and theoretically to be able to trust both of them to run the Jazz offense that makes the Jazz so good would be a big benefit in pulling out these wins.
0: You mentioned that we've seen the Jazz experience success in these late-game situations when they have Donovan as a distributor, and that is something that's repeated itself over and over. And I'm of the belief, personally, that if Donovan can do that, keep his eyes up and out and looking for guys, that distributing and passing for open looks late-in games is going to be something that, over the course of time, defenses are going to adjust to, and it'll open up opportunities for Donovan in the future. And I think that's something that's really important for his growth and understanding that it's less of a focus on getting his shot. It's more of a focus, in my mind, on take what the defense gives you. If the defense, if the Celtics are doing what they did with Donovan last night and Marcus Smart is just in his shorts in the fourth quarter, put the ball in Mike Connolly's hands or let Donovan create and then pass out to an open three. We saw that a couple times with uh, Bogdanovich got some good looks, Conley got a good look, I think Ingles had a couple good looks in the fourth quarter, and so by being willing to pass, it opens up scoring opportunities for Donovan later in the season, and so I think that's that's a really big thing for him moving forward.
1: Yeah, um, and then just the whole jazz offense, I, it's hard, Then NBA defense has done a great job of flipping this, but theoretically in principle across the league centers are good shooters and guards struggle a little bit. Um, the three point area is kind of bouncing out a little bit, but your most efficient shots are going to be Rudy dunks and, you know, favors layups and Donovan and Conley layups when they get there and all that fun stuff. Like that's still always going to be how basketball is played is can you hit layups and dunks and then threes and the just kind of struggle to get to the rim and they struggle to get their role players and big men shots down the stretch. Um, I'm going to dive into this more today. It's on my to do list. Is, you know, when the Jazz win versus when they lose and that kind of thing, what percentage of the Jazz shots are being, ta- being taken by Conley, Clarkson, and Mitchell? Because those three take the most shots on the Jazz, and those three are all scoring guards who have some efficiency problems, give or take. And, There's a lot of value in getting your best shooters good shots. That's what every team's trying to do. And the Jazz sometimes struggle to get Joe Ingles his looks in the fourth quarter or Rudy Gobert his looks or Royce O'Neal a couple extra threes. And, you know, it's probably one of the reasons the Jazz were so good last year is their main strategy last year was the 1-3 pick and roll with Donovan and Boyan. And it just destroyed teams because... Boyon would pop, and how many clutch threes did we see from Boyan? People like to point to the buzzer beaters, which are fantastic, but both of those were kind of just funky random plays that just kind of fell into place. I mean, the one against the Rockets was just, a, oh, crap, I have to pass it in, and Boyan will shoot it, and he made the shot, and it was fantastic. But there was a lot of plays between 30 and 90 seconds left in the game where Boyan would pick and pop with Don Mitchell and hit a big three. So... Getting back to that team basketball of these pick and rolls and swings and this and that it was really important for the Jazz because we have seen, I tweeted some overtime numbers specifically, that we have seen Donovan and other players to an extent where they just kind of play your turn, my turn. and A lot of times it's Donovan's turn and it doesn't work out as well. So it's a lot like a transition thing. I think it's a minor thing. It is a concern. I do think this is something that could lose the Jazz in the playoff series on like, the transition thing because, you know, if you get down to a three- four-point game in a game seven, what are you going to do in the last three minutes of your season to save your season? I do worry about what the Jazz do there. And I do want to put one more umbrella over it. I don't think this is a Donovan Mitchell problem, per se, as much as it's a Quinn Snyder problem. This is Quinn's job to get the team under control and do what they need to do the last few minutes of the game. And so if it's Quinn, which I would assume it is at least a little bit saying, okay, Donovan, now's your time to do your thing. Then that needs to be fixed because you do have three all stars. You have Joe Ingalls who's shooting 70% true shooting percentage. You have Boyan who's had a rough year, but the, the one thing Boyan does for sure bring is great three point shooting. You know, Royce has been fantastic. So you still have these role players and three point shooters around them that you can work your offense. Um, down the stretch a little
0: bit better. I have one more question for you. It's more of a rotation-related question, but I, I think it has a lot to do with these closing lineups and the, the Jazz ability to create good offense in the final minutes of a close game. But uh, Alan, or as as he's known as Dog, from the uh, Dog and Doof Show, asked us the other day, just what our thoughts are on Quinn Snyder changing up his rotation in these close games where the Jazz are trailing, like Golden State, I think of think would have been a really good opportunity for this. What about extending Jordan Clarkson a little bit more, using him in crunch time, and even playing at the risk of using three small guards? You go Conley, Mitchell, and Clarkson in the lineup at the same time. I Defensively, that could be a struggle, but you got... You got buckets there, that's for sure. Would that be something that's a worthwhile strategy?
1: Um, I will say Adam Bushman just wrote a great piece for SLC Dunk on the Jordan Clarkson-Donovan Mitchell lineup being horrific defensively. So go check that out but kind of a bigger picture than just, Halos hey, let plug in Clarkson because he can get a bucket. Um, I would just be very flexible with that fourth and fifth spot. You're going to put Colleen Mitchell and Gobert on the court. That's a given. I don't think anyone will argue anything that. But I'm not sure how often you need to go with the Royce-Boyon lineup. Specifically, I think you play Royce a majority of the time. But that Boyon lineup should be very flexible with Ingles and Clarkson. Um, and who needs to step in and play those minutes. Because if the offense is out of control, Joe Ingles is always a fantastic option. Um, and if you just really do need a bucket, it's last minute you're down by a point or two. I would not be opposed to putting Clarkson on the court either. And especially down the stretch, Jokic always has fantastic on-off numbers in the clutch because they play offense-defense with him. So it looks yep. like he scores 100 points and doesn't let up any. That's because he's on the court for the 100 offensive points and he's off the court for the zero defensive points. Um, and you can do that with Clarkson. You have two timeouts. their team has two timeouts. They, you know, It's very easy um, with free throws and everything else to play offense-defense with a guy like Jordan Clarkson um, and Royce O'Neal, for example. So while I'm not 100% on board with the just-play-Clarkson thing, I do think... Being flexible with that fifth guy and even the fourth guy to a lesser extent with Royce is not a bad idea.
0: Yeah, that's one I hadn't really thought of was the the ability to play offense defense. And there are so many stoppages late in these close games that you you have that opportunity. And even if you are trying to play offense defense and you force a miss with Royce in the lineup, you're not afraid to go down to the offensive end if you have a transition opportunity because Royce can shoot the ball well and. He's He's not going to kill you offensively except if he doesn't take an, an open shot. So, yeah, I think the it's something worth looking at if the jazz are down you know five, six, seven points with 90 seconds left. I think it's a lineup they can use, and the the key word that you used there in my mind was the flexibility to try different things depending on the situation. Sometimes you might want to close with Bojan if he's playing really well that night. Sometimes you want to close with Joe because he gives you a little bit more on the defensive end and is still a great shooter plus an extra ball handler on the floor. Sometimes... Probably rarely, but there might even be opportunities where you you have Clarkson closing over Conley, depending on how shots are falling on a night-to-night basis. But having the flexibility and be being willing to use different lineups in those late-game situations. Sometimes you ride the hot hands. Sometimes you trust guys and their experience. And uh, I I think th- I just I love the depth that this Jazz team has. They they've got so many options, so many guys that they can go to, and. So many guys that they trust. I think about the Jazz team two years ago, and I know there's still some people who wax poetic about the Ricky Rubio and Jay Crowder days, but when there was a minute left in the game and the ball swings out to Jay Crowder on the wing, I don't want him shooting that ball. I'm always cringing. When Ricky Rubio was taking that shot, it was always a cringe, and now they have so many great shooters on this roster. Hell, if George Niang is in a game because of some random reason in those types of moments— I like George shooting the ball right there. It's a luxury that the Jazz have that I don't think any other team has in in the league, uh, just as far as the depth of shooting on this roster.
1: Yeah, and you know, I love, love, love that Rubio Crowder team. I'm one of those guys you're talking about that's overly hyped. But as I mentioned to start this conversation off, that team went 0-11 when trailing by three points or less in the final two minutes. No other team had less than four losses that season, and the Jazz had zero because of what you're talking about. They just really struggled, whether it was a trust factor with those guys or whether it was hero ball by second-year Donovan at the time or whatever it was, the Jazz literally could not back their way into one win that season, and it cost them. They were the five seed, and they lost to the Rockets in the first round in a blowout fashion, and, you know, it was easy to look. I spent my whole summers looking at those numbers going... You know, if we can just get this to a league average number, even a bad but not horrific number, we're going to win 60 games, and it's going to be great, and yada, yada, yada. And I wasn't wrong, but that obviously isn't what happened. And so these games are important, and these are the things that do show up in the playoffs. That you just have to be able to figure out a way to get a bucket, and the Jazz do not have a LeBron James or whatever to go out and just get a bucket. They need to continue to play team basketball. I do want to make one more point before we wrap up, going back to the Jokic comment. The Nuggets for years have been a major statistic anomaly in the fact that they just somehow win every close game. Um, Every time the Nuggets are within like three points in the final three minutes, I turn it on on League Pass because I just have to figure out how they're going to win this game. Um, (laughs) And a lot of it is Jokic offense, Pulley defense, not anymore, of course, with Pulley and Detroit, but the ability just to play the game possession by possession and play it at such a high IQ smart level, specifically Jokic being the main ball handler and pieces around him, is why the Nuggets have won that game. So just playing smart team basketball and playing by possession by possession has been the things I've taken away from the Nuggets, somehow doing that for like three or four straight years. Hopefully the Jazz can figure it out. If they can get this league average, I'll be more than thrilled. They'll so run away with the one seed, and I'll be confident when it's game six of the Western Conference Finals and the Jazz are down two and they have 45 seconds left in the ball, they'll be good to go get a bucket, get a stop, and get another bucket and win a game. That's my hopes and dreams, as they figure this out. There's a lot of luck involved, but overall, this is a, I'll say legit, but minor concern.
0: We had a great thing going there, McCade, and then you start heaping praise on Jokic and the Nuggets. So I'm going to make you close. You have to say one nice thing about Quinn Snyder and Donovan Mitchell now, so we can end on a positive note. But,
1: but Donovan Mitchell, I mean, Quinn Snyder is not a perfect coach. Uh, no, so, <laughs> no, Quinn is fantastic. The offensive system's great. His ability to connect with players is great. You see the confidence, and, you know, everyone doesn't want to trade anybody because of the chemistry. A lot of that chemistry glue is Quinn Snyder. Quinn Snyder is almost like a role player on this team, and he's the glue guy. Like, you could argue that Quinn Snyder plays the Jared Dudley role for the Jazz, which is really weird coming from a coach, but that's just the type of person that Quint Snyder is. Um, side note, shout out to Jared Dudley for not getting surgery on his MCL so he can continue to travel with the team and be that glue guy. Um, super fun story going on there. And then Donovan's a superstar. Not, not a superstar. at that. Um, Donovan's an all-star. that you know Made back-to-back all-star teams, borderline all-NBA player. He's fantastic. It's played, making, taking a big jump. These guys are good. The Jazz are 29-10. and 10. They're going to be a one-seat. Talking a championship into existence on this podcast, they'll be just fine. Um, despite the concerns we talked about today.
0: All right, where can they find you on social media, man?
1: You can find me on Twitter at McCadeP8, that's M-C-C-A-B-E-P-8. You guys know what to do.
0: And you can find me, Brian Priest on Twitter at Priest 24 that's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E. Check out the hashtag JazzPod co-op between the twos and threes, hitting the high notes, jazz Gals, and... Is it the Utah boys? I don't know. Somebody, I was told the other day, somebody else is joining the Jazz Pod Co-op. And you can also find Home Court Press at home Court underscore press. Please remember to like, share, rate, and review the show so more people can find it. We're having a great time recording this. And I don't know, McKay, I feel like we're really hitting our stride. So St. Patrick's Day, green beer for everybody. How do we finish?
1: Hypno. Bam.